0: You know, there's an event that takes place at the end of every school year, probably at every school that exists in the springtime. It's the event where the tables are spread out in the hallway and the lost and found bin is emptied. And it's always amazing to see the volume of clothes and items that have been lost and never claimed. I don't know how you are but i've lost a number of things in my lifetime some things were important some things weren't it's always interesting as the years go on when you suddenly find it and you try to recall why you put something where you put it and for instance when i was a young kid i used to take care of a neighbor's dog so i had keys to the house and keys to the gates and i lost them somewhere as a kid And what was interesting, I found them just a couple of years ago when I was going through the barn at my parents' house, looking in a drawer, I went, there's those keys that I thought I lost out in the yard somewhere, never could find them. I'd put them there because I was working on something. It came back to me. Losing something. Losing something is part of the parables of chapter 15, part of what we're going to discuss today and what we're going to look at, this parable, as Tim Keller says, one of the most famous parables that is known throughout the world, the parable of the prodigal son. You know, I don't know about you, have you ever been a place if you have a kid where you couldn't find your kid, where they were lost and that panic feeling goes on, maybe at a shopping center, maybe something like that happens and you wonder and you can't find them immediately? It happened to us when we were at the seminary at Fort Wayne. We had just gotten there, it was the school year, our daughters were enrolled at one of the churches down the road in school. And what had happened is the kids were out on recess. Our daughter missed the bell, came back, and all the do- doors are locked, obviously, for security purposes. She didn't know the procedure that if you're locked out, you're supposed to go all the way around the building to the front office, which is where the door was open to get back in. She didn't know what to do. We lived about a mile from there, so she decided she'd walk home. Well, we get a call from the school, that your daughter's not here you know the feeling goes in your gut feeling you're worried and so we're looking everywhere and trying to find out where she is and we go follow the route and she's not there what happened as she started walking home a policeman saw her and picked her up and brought her back to the house but that feeling of someone being lost is just a horrible feeling a feeling of that we've lost forever a person that we love someone we care about so deeply I imagine today, as we look at this story, that when that father's youngest son left, when he was lost, as the father said, that was the constant feeling he had, wondering would that son ever come back? Would he ever see his face again? Would he ever have the chance to talk to him, to love him, to recount the good years that there must have been, not the bad years and the way that he left? You know, we prepare our children most of our life to get to that point at least in our society, to leave. I know someone once said, well, you know, they're on bungee cords, don't you? They come back always. They don't just leave and go away. They do come back and stay with you again and again. But we prepare them for those moments, to leave home, to set out on their own. Not so in the society that we're looking at today, in this time, in this place, in this agricultural society of early Christendom and Judaism that's taking place. In that society, it was never expected that the children would go off on their own. They would inherit. They would buy land around where the father and their household had been. They would continue to be part of the community around them. So when this son comes to this father and makes this demand of this father, to this society, this is an unheard of. This is an insane request. No child would ever make this request? There was a man who had two sons. The young one, the younger one, said to his father, "Father, give me my share of the estate." So he divided his property between them. You know, the younger son never received the inheritance, obviously, until the father had died. To say those words to the father meant to just say to him, I want you dead. If I want what's mine now, give it to me now. The other thing was the estate, as we see in that verse, was never divided between the children. The older son always got two-thirds of the estate. One was because he was the one who then was supposed to take care of if there were any daughters in the families to pay for their dowries. The younger son never got to divide. He only would get... One third. Isn't it interesting, there's another place in Scripture, and I don't know if it's Luke or maybe Mark, where the crowd is around Jesus and someone in the crowd says to Jesus, must have been a younger brother, Lord, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Again, something that was never heard of. I wish you were dead, Father. I want what's mine now. But the Father did that. He divided it between the two of them, taking some of what would have been the older brothers and splitting it down the middle. And here's what's interesting in this society and what would have taken place. Because it was an agricultural society, it's not that there's ready cash available. Things would have to have been sold off. This would happen in the community. The community would have been experiencing the pain of this family because he would have to sell his land. He would have to sell... Off livestock and other things in order that this son could get this inheritance and so as we go along it says not long after that the younger son got together all that he had and set off for a distant country where he squandered his wealth in wild living part of what would have happened with that younger son is as things were done and as things were divided he too would have to go into that community to friends that he'd known his whole life, to merchants around there, to sell off things. And let me tell you, I'm sure, I'm sure there were people that took advantage of him at those moments, didn't give him what was valued on whatever he was selling because they just wanted him out of the community. Someone this, wrongfully, who had treated his parents this way, didn't belong in the community. Get out, leave. That's why he had to go, I think, to a distant country. He couldn't stay in that community with what he had asked for. No one wanted him there. You know, Shakespeare says in his play, King Lear, the words, it is sharper than a serpent's tongue to have an ungrateful child. Isn't that the truth? This ungrateful younger son I'm sure that the father's heart was just broken at all he watched of not only the fact that the son had left his family, but the son had now had to leave the community too and to go off. And we know as we look in this story what else happened. He spent everything, he squandered it in wild living. Why is it always it seems like there's one child in the family who goes on this route and one child who doesn't go on that route. Sometimes it's the younger child. Sometimes it's the older child. It doesn't matter. It's just that some take one path and some take another, but he realized the path he took was not the path that was going to lead him to what he hoped he'd find, to happiness. And so it says he went out and he sold himself to a person in that country, and he hired himself out, and here it is, a good Jew tending pigs. He now was not only out of the community, not only in a distant land, not only out of funds, not only hitting rock bottom, but he was now ritually unclean also. He could not purify himself. He could never come back into a society without making the proper sacrifices and the things that were required by the law. He hit rock bottom. He looked at the pigs around him, he looked at the slop and the food they were eating. He longed to have something for eat, that basic human need that came over him, the need for food. The prayer of the church that we pray every Sunday or we pray constantly throughout our lives, give us this day our daily bread. Lord, don't let us be in need and in want. With nothing, We know that God provides that. He was at that point. Isn't it interesting, though, how often in life it takes someone getting to the rock bottom point to realize this isn't the way I want to live my life. This isn't what I thought it would be. I'm sorry for what I've done. Sorry. But is he... Repenting, I say that because as we look at verse 17 it says he came to his senses and said how many of my father's hired men have food to spare and here I am starving to death I will set out and go back to my father and say to him father I've sinned against heaven and against you I am no longer worthy to be called your son make me like one of your hired men so he got up and went to his father. Why do I say, was he sorrowful or was he repentful? He uses a word in that sentence. It's the word, make me. Make me is a demand he's going to make of his father. You see, in this community, someone, a good Jew, needed two things in order to be restored to community. First, they needed a sense of sorrow over what they had done, but they also then needed to be willing to make recompense for what they had done. When he says, make me, he's figuring this. It's still in his ball court. He's going to go to his father. He's going to say, make me a servant. Here's what can happen to me as a servant. I'm able to then earn a wage. I'm able to begin to pay back what I owe you, though it may never happen in my lifetime. But I'm willing to do those things to make restitution for what I've done. You see, he's still the guy in control. He still thinks he's got a plan. He still thinks that he's the one who can call the shots. You know, how often is that not true in our lives as Christians, that we tend to try to make deals with God? God, I'll do this if you do this. I'll be really good at this, or I'll make a vow. I've heard that before. You know, I promised God that I would do this if only he'd do this for me. We think that we're on this level playing field with God almighty eternal God we think that we can call the shots that God will respond to our feeble attempts to give him something that God works that way that he'll be pleased with our sacrifices and our offerings and how that flies so in the face of what true grace is well he goes back with his rehearsed speech and he goes to his father but the reaction isn't what he thought he would find It wasn't the reaction of a father who would say, yes, son, you've done all these things. Yes, I'll bring you back. Yes, I'll make you a hired hand. Yes, we can work this out. You can be at least in our community again and we'll work on that restoration. No, what we see is what would be thought of as insane The father running down the road to meet this son. The father throwing his arms around his son, kissing his son, welcoming him back into his presence. It's reminiscent of what we've seen in the Old Testament time and time again when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers and he ran and embraced them and kissed them. When Jacob and Esau came to each other in reconciliation and embraced each other and kissed each other. Here this father is coming to this child, this ungrateful child, this child who has been cut out of the family and cut out of the community. And he acts as if nothing has ever happened. The audience that listened to this would have been shocked, would have been horrified. This isn't the way it works. This isn't how God works. We have to do certain things to be restored into the community. You don't let somebody back in free. They have to pay a price. And yet the son tried to begin in the face of this grace, in the face of this father loving him and embracing him and just being glad that he was back in his presence, he tries to feebly say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son, but he doesn't get to finish the sentence. He doesn't get to even get to the point of make me one of your hired people. The father interrupts him and says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his fingers and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate the ring the ring of status, to be restored to that family once again. Even in the face of the fact that he had received all that was ever going to be his, he was out of the family, he was not going to be brought back in, now he is restored to a status once again. You know, this parable that we are going to focus on for the next six weeks has much more involved than just the few things that I'm touching on this morning. There is still a whole another story about an elder brother that we're going to discover, that we're going to look at. There are so many other things going on in why Jesus is telling this parable, who he's telling it to, what he wants us to understand, that I can't even begin to encapsulate it right now. But I want to just touch on these things for you in that final moment of the celebration of what grace means to you and to me. No matter what in our lives we have done, no matter what we think we have done well, no matter what we have done wrong. None of the things in our lives are anything that we could ever bring before our gracious God. This picture of the Heavenly Father, of one who runs to us to embrace us in our situation, no matter what we rehearse, no matter what we try to say, no matter what we try to do, is the picture of true and unmerited grace. We are loved unconditionally. We are forgiven unconditionally because Jesus Christ, our true elder brother, brother came to this world to give his life in place for us, to find us when we were lost, to bring us back not on a contract basis, not on a basis where we would do this and he would do this, but to restore us no matter what has happened in our lives, no matter what has been done wrong. Restore us to being children, to a place of status, to being loved and forgiven. This is a story about life, about a path that so many of us choose, whether it's wayward, whether it's right, that we are going to look at and discuss, but we are going to be overwhelmed in the next six weeks at the grace of our Heavenly Father in sending Jesus Christ, his only Son. The sacrifice that bought us life and hope and peace once again. The prodigal son, the elder son, the grace of the Father. All of these things are part of our lives every day that we live and we are showered and we are embraced and we are kissed by our Heavenly Father who loves us unconditionally, no matter what we have done, no matter what we haven't done, because that's what true grace is. Will you pray with me? Father, we stand in awe and overwhelmed at your love and your forgiveness through Jesus Christ, your only Son. Mold us and shape us by the power of your word and your spirit. That we, Lord, would serve you in all things, not out of compulsion, but out of gratitude for all you have done for us. Bind us together, Lord, in this place as a community, a community bound together in forgiveness and love that comes from you, that we might be loving and forgiving to one another always, that we might lift the name of our Savior always to praise him for the incredible gift we have. We are your children, restored to your side to be with you forever. We give you praise and glory and honor and love for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen.